European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 41, Issue 25. Focus Issue, Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief, Professor Thomas Lucia. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. How to Slice the Pie, Heart Failure Subgroups and Their Clinical Meaning. Heart failure has been defined and characterized in multiple ways. For instance, it has been characterized into ischemic and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, based on the underlying cause and to determine outcomes. More recently, genetic information has been used to differentiate different forms of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. The simplest and most widely used categories are based on left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF, and indeed it provides important diagnostic and prognostic information. Based on that, the ESC guidelines have proposed three forms of heart failure, i.e., heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEF-REF, heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction, or HEF-MEREF, and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEF-PEF. This, however, has been widely criticized for several reasons, as outlined in the viewpoint, time to rename the middle child of heart failure, heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, by Caroline Lam and colleagues from the National Heart Center, Singapore, Indeed, the middle child of heart failure, with an LVEF between 40-50%, to 50%, was christened in 2014 in recognition of the large gap in treatment evidence in this subgroup, with prior clinical trial evidence limited to those patients with ejection fractions of 40% or lower, and recent attention being showered upon those with LVEF of 50% or greater. Obviously, an LVEF of 40-50% to 50% is a grey area, also when considering the precision and reproducibility of echocardiography that is commonly used for assessing LVEF. Furthermore, LVEF is even less insightful in those with concomitant mitral regurgitation. Although the adoption of the tongue-breaker HEFMREF has inspired hundreds of publications, it remains uncertain whether it is a true entity or just a consequence of the trialist definition of HEFREF. Possibly mild HEFREF might therefore be much more appropriate. Many heart failure drugs do not work equally across a whole spectrum of LVEF. For instance, spironolactone is particularly effective when LVEF is lower than 60%. However, this is not precisely known for newer heart failure drugs, as outlined in the fast track, a putative placebo analysis of the effects of sacubitril valsartin in heart failure across the full range of ejection fraction by Scott Solomon from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts and colleagues. In Paradigm HF and Paragon HF trials, sacubitril valsartin has been tested against enalalapril. To estimate its effects against placebo, the authors made indirect comparisons of the effects of sacubitril valsartin with putative placebos in heart failure across a full range of LVEF. To that end, they analysed patient-level data from Paradigm HF and Paragon HF and Charm Alternative and Charm Preserved, thus testing sacubitril valsartin against a putative placebo. Across a range of LVEF, sacubitril valsartin was associated with a relative risk reduction of 0.54. Treatment benefits of sacubitril valsartin varied non-linearly with LVEF with attenuation of effects observed at LVEF above 60%. In comparing Paradigm HF to Charm Alternative, the estimated risk reduction of sacubitril valsartin was 48%. In comparing Paragon HF with Charm Preserved, 
risk reduction of sacubitril valsartan was 29%. Across the full range of LVEF, consistent effects were observed for time-to-first endpoints. Thus, this putative placebo analysis reinforces the treatment benefits of sacubitril valsartan on the risk of adverse cardiovascular events across a full range of LVEF, with the most pronounced effects observed at an LVEF below 60%. These clinically important findings are further discussed in a thoughtful editorial by Michael Bohm from the Uniklinikum des Saarlandes in Homburg, Germany, and colleagues. Hypertension is a well-established heart failure risk, especially for adverse left ventricular remodeling. Coronary microvascular dysfunction does occur in hypertension and heart failure. This is further investigated in a fast track entitled Hypertensive Coronary Microvascular Dysfunction, a subclinical marker of end-organ damage and heart failure, where Marcello Di Cali and colleagues from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA, use myocardial flow reserve and global longitudinal strain, markers of subclinical microvascular and myocardial dysfunction, to refine hypertensive heart failure risk. Of 194 patients, 155 had adaptive, while 39 had maladaptive remodeling, which was associated with lower myocardial flow reserve and impaired global longitudinal strain. Across the remodeling spectrum, diastolic parameters, global longitudinal strain, and NT-pro-BNP were independently associated with myocardial blood flow reserve. Maladaptive left ventricular remodeling was associated with increased adjusted incidence of heart failure hospitalization and death. Importantly, the combination of abnormal myocardial flow reserve and global longitudinal strain was associated with a higher rate of heart failure hospitalization compared to normal myocardial flow reserve and global longitudinal strain with a hazard ratio of 3.2, including in the adaptive remodeling subset with one of 3.9. Thus, coronary microvascular dysfunction and myocardial mechanics closely correlates that refined heart failure risk assessment of hypertensives. These novel insights are put into context in an editorial by Javier Escand from the Hospital Clinico Universitario San Carlos in Madrid, Spain. Sodium glucose transport type 2 inhibitors, or SGL2, have shown impressive protection in diabetics and are now recommended as first-line therapy in diabetics with atherothrombotic CV disease. More recently, in the DAPA-HF trial, the SGL2 inhibitor dapagliflozin reduced the risk of worsening heart failure and death in patients with HEFREF, respective of diabetes. However, it remains unclear how background heart failure therapy affects outcomes with dapagliflozin. In their fast track, effects of dapagliflozin in DAPA-HF According to background heart failure therapy, John McMurray from the Western Infirmary Glasgow on behalf of the DAPA-HF investigators examined this issue in a post-hoc analysis. They examined the following subgroups as to the presence or absence of a diuretic, digoxin, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, sacubitril valsartin, ivabradine, implanted cardioverter defibrillator devices and or cardiac resynchronization therapy. Further, they examined the effects of study drugs according to the dosage above and below the median. Patients were treated with diuretic in 84%, a renin-angiotensin system blocker in 94%, and a beta blocker in 96%. Half of those on a beta blocker, and almost as many taking an ACE inhibitor or ARB, were treated with greater than or equal to 50% of the recommended dose. 
Overall, the hazard ratio of dapagliflozin versus placebo was 0.74 for the primary endpoint, which was consistent in all subgroups. These clinically most relevant findings are accompanied by an editorial by Milton Packer from the Baylor University Medical Center at Dallas in Texas, USA. Stem cell therapy has been a big hope in heart failure. However, many trials have been neutral or only borderline positive, and the field has been hit by a fraud scandal as well. As a consequence, embryonic stem cell-based therapies have been the last hope. In a clinical review article entitled, A Realistic Appraisal of the Use of Embryonic Stem Cell-Based Therapies for Cardiac Repair, Marcin Wyszorczynski and Roberto Boli from the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, USA, note that despite the well-documented capacity of embryonic stem cells to differentiate into cardiomyocytes, Transplantation of embryonic cells is plagued by several problems, including graft rejection, arrhythmias, and potential risk of teratomas. Indeed, lifelong immunosuppression is a disease. Transplantation of human embryonic stem cells in primates causes life-threatening arrhythmias. In contemporary clinical research, the margin of tolerance for such catastrophic effects as malignancies is zero, and although the probability of tumors can be reproduced by embryonic stem cell differentiation, it is unlikely to be eliminated, particularly when billions of cells are being injected. Although embryonic stem cells were touted as capable of long-term regeneration, these cells disappear rapidly after transplantation, and there is no evidence of long-term engraftment. There is, however, mounting evidence that they act via paracrine mechanisms, just like adult cells do. To date, no controlled clinical trial of embryonic stem cells in cardiovascular disease has been conducted or even initiated. In contrast, adult cells have been used in thousands of patients with heart disease with no significant adverse effect and with results that are sufficiently encouraging to warrant phase two and three trials. Furthermore, induced pluripotent stem cells offer pluripotency like embryonic stem cells without the need for lifelong immunosuppression. The most reasonable interpretation of the current data is that embryonic stem cell-based therapies are not likely to have a clinical application for heart disease anytime soon. Cardiac function relies on the interplay of several specialized cell types and a precisely regulated network of chemical and mechanical stimuli. In the current opinion, living myocardial slices, a novel multicellular model for cardiac translational research, Thomas Thorm and colleagues from the Hanover Medical School in Germany Note that the progress of translational research has been hindered by the lack of appropriate research models. Living myocardial slices are ultra-thin, i.e. 100 to 400 micrometer sections of living cardiac tissue that maintain the native multicellularity, architecture and structure and can provide information at a cellular, subcellular level. They overcome most of the limitations of other in vitro models. This technology can bridge the gap between in vitro and in vivo human studies and has the potential to revolutionize translational research approaches. The issue is complemented by various discussion forum contributions. In a contribution entitled Intravenous Vasodilators in Acute Heart Failure Patients with Low Basic Blood Pressure, may the benefits come from targeting perfusion rather than pressure. Pier Paolo Boccino and colleagues from the Azienda Ospedalario Universitaria Città del Salute e della Scienza di Torino in Italy discussed the recent contribution entitled 
How much can acute heart failure patients with low basic blood pressure, systolic blood pressure 90 to 100 millimeters of mercury, benefit from the use of vasodilators? By Zhao et al., that was a contribution discussing the 2016 ESC guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of acute and chronic heart failure. The Task Force for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Acute and Chronic Heart Failure of the European Society of Cardiology, or ESC, developed with the special contribution of the Heart Failure Association. Zhao et al. respond in a separate statement. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.